Greetings, podcast listeners. I'm your host, C. Culbertson. Welcome to the Colorado Review Podcast, in partnership with the Center for Literary Publishing at Colorado State University. In this episode, associate editor and podcast host Lilia Schreifer talks with Matthew Gavin Frank, a creative nonfiction writer, poet, and professor of creative writing at Northern Michigan University about his latest book, Flight of the Diamond Smugglers, a tale of pigeons, obsession, and greed along coastal South Africa. Listen in to hear Matthew talk in depth about the ethics and experience of writing as an outsider in a globalized world. I found your prologue at the front of the book to be a really rich and honest synthesis of the scope of your project. Um, Would you mind getting our listeners up to speed on what is the material your book is tackling and all the layers of it as best as you can? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, And again, yeah, thanks for having me, Lilia. So Flight of the Diamond Smugglers is about to simplify, um, I guess, the ways in which trained carrier pigeons are used by quote-unquote illicit diamond smuggling rings along the diamond coast of South Africa, which is basically the northwest uh, portion of the South African coast, uh, close to the Namibian border. But the book is also about the fallout that occurs in the aftermath of decades worth of gleeful corporate pillaging, extractive capitalism and corporate colonialism too. So I guess uh, when I I heard that a portion of South Africa's West Coast was still owned by the De Beers conglomerate um, and was officially closed off to the public for like the better part of 80 years, which was the heyday of diamond exploration and and mining in the area. I mean, therefore, essentially like transgenerationally plunging the local communities into this kind of corporate enforced cloister, uh, this kind of mysterious uh, isolation. I became obsessed with visiting the place. And, you know, beginning in 2007, De Beers began withdrawing some of their interests from the area because they had so thoroughly ravaged the earth um, that they had overmined it. And even though that uh, they believed that there were, there were still like, quote unquote, profound mineral wealth still embedded in the soil there, meaning diamonds, they decided it wasn't worth their while to kind of continue actively mining, at least to the degree that they were. And so as they withdrew some of their interests, some of the doors to some of these previously closed off towns, towns that were closed off, as I mentioned, for the better part of 80 years, began opening up to the public for the first time. And so I, I mean, public entry is still restricted and met with like an official wariness, but it, it was possible. And I, I so badly wanted to visit the place for reasons that I, I, I couldn't fully flesh out beyond, I guess, morbid curiosity. Um, as I think I mentioned to you, to you before, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of innately attracted to forbidden places. 
you know, ever since I was a kid, I mean, like 10 out of my 12 juvenile arrests were for trespassing. And so eventually I navigated the hoops necessary for a visit to the area, um, replete with the advanced sending of various copies of my passport and other identifying documents. And, and I was able to get into some of these um, mining towns and talk to some of the folks who, who live and labor therein. Thank you. That was such an excellent synopsis. Just a follow-up question. I'm actually really curious, Matt, if when you say you are drawn to trespassing just now and in the, and in the text, does part of you wish that, I, I guess I'm asking if it would kind of ruin it if you were, if it wasn't forbidden, like, is it almost like a love-hate sort of relationship in terms of your work? Yeah, like, I, I mean, in a way, like, I feel like it's really like the, the act of writerly trespass um, is, is something that's incredibly fraught. And I, I was always um, cognizant and, and, uh, of this and, and incredibly, like, I mean, worried about it. Is this my story to tell, so to speak? And so I wouldn't necessarily call it love-hate. I would just call it, like, worry and more worry, uh, I, I guess. And so um, when, I, you know, of course, I, I got um, folks' permission to write the book and to include their stories in the book. It was incredibly unexpected that, you know, I was expecting uh, to be greeted with the sort of wariness that would compel a lot of um, the folks in this town to, to, you know, just kind of not be willing to talk to me. You know, I mean, when, when an entire area is closed off to the public for the better part of 80 years, outsiders vividly stand out, right? And so as, as opposed to that, I was incredibly surprised that people were eager to talk to me. There was almost kind of like this urgent sense of unburdening and a need to tell somebody who was not from the area what they had witnessed and, and what their lives were like. And so I tried in my book um, when, when I was relating some of these stories to, to make myself as narratively invisible as possible. Um, I just didn't want to meddle with, with these stories. And I did not want to exoticize or romanticize um, the material at all, but just kind of record and listen in, in a clear-eyed, maybe matter-of-fact uh, uh, approach um, to avoid undue sentiment born of, you know, crafty flourish on the, on, on the page. And so turning this sort of stuff into, uh, I mean, larding these kinds of observations with undue sentiment and turning them into something romantic would seem to me to be completely disingenuous and not doing the story and the voices therein a, a service. Like I didn't want to mitigate the impacts of real atrocity with kind of faux romance. And when I was speaking to people, um, especially um, one of my main subjects was a 13-year-old diamond miner named Msizi. And um, his mother, of course, gave me permission to, to interview uh, him. I just wanted to honor his voice and stay out of the way when he was telling his story. Um, his story did not need my constant running commentary in order to illuminate it or romanticize it. So I, I guess I was very um, careful to not seem like 
just kind of the swaggery trespasser on the page. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I feel like this sort of ethical concern is, I mean, f- fiction, fiction writers have it, I suppose, you know, as citizens, but definitely in creative nonfiction, I feel like that's, um, that's definitely got to be a, a looming question for sure. And, and that transitions nicely into my next question for you, which is on the idea of travel logging in a globalized world. And so the funny thing is when I was writing this question up uh, to prepare to talk with you, that question made a lot of sense in my head. But now that you're speaking, actually, it's funny because you said that that folks were seemed like they were needed to release this pressure um, to tell this story, you know, and it's like maybe we're globalized in the sense of moving peoples, you know, um, migrating peoples, but I don't know if our stories have quite gotten there. I don't know if understanding of people has necessarily increased. I don't know. Um, does that question make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it, it does. It does. Um, absolutely. I, I, I feel like this notion of, of travel, a travelogue in a, in a globalized world wasn't wasn't necessarily a, a major concern that I was engaging in this book specifically because this the particular area um, that I was investigating and and researching was robbed, I guess, of of this sense of connection to the remainder of the world by the corporation itself. Um, I mean, the corporation, of course, uh, was was engaged in in you know just kind of the the um, the global network a little bit, um, but the folks on the ground who labored for the uh, the corporation at various levels were again like um, they were kept in this bubble again across generations, and so for I, I guess for me like I. I um, you know, was was coming in from the outside, traveling across the globe to get to this to get to this place, and I engaged some of those issues with regard to um, the corporate machinations, the overarching corporate machinations. But with regard to the folks um, there on the grounds, it was just something else, um, something something different. I mean, I I I can't I can't stress enough like um, how how isolated um, these communities were kept um, by De Beers, so much so that, that the area was known as the Sperchebiet, or the Forbidden Zone. And folks were not allowed to leave the zone for decades. And so De Beers kept the residents distracted with trucked-in luxuries and social programs. They provided fully furnished and well-stocked houses, uh, they provided sundries and replaced them. De Beers even set up their own school systems for the children, provided the curriculum, provided various entertainments and recreational clubs. They, they actually even had a shadowy agreement with satellite companies um, to scrub the images of the Forbidden Zone from the recorded files of the Earth. And so it was essentially and officially an erasure from the earth, a blank spot on the map, a redacted place. And so it was, it was really strange just kind of like navigating this like sui generi sort of construct like amid a globalized world. 
but it was it was kind of like an, an anechoic chamber, so to speak, like within it. So um, I'm not quite sure how to answer that question. <laughs> no, no, you just did. And he brought up another question. So you talked about living in a kind of a space of erasure. And there's a really, there's a couple interesting moments in the text where we get sort of it quiets down and we're sitting with you and Louisa um, after the day. And there is a moment where you, you guys are talking about your, your quote unquote real life out in the Midwest. And I was wondering if in the process of uncovering the story and writing and experiencing the enormity of just so much um, colonial legacy and destruction there. Did the place over time ever come to feel like quote unquote real life? And how did your experience of your own positioning in the space change over time? Uh, Especially considering how you were very uh, insistent upon limiting your own narrative presence in the text. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such an awesome question. I feel as if, yeah, I mean, there were, uh, being there involved immersing oneself in a kind of bumping and grinding of various realities and unrealities. Real life and unreal life, which is also part of another kind of real life. And surfing that and navigating it especially because, and I'm not going to get into this so much because I don't want to talk about it, but especially because at the, at the time, um, Louisa and I were going through an incredibly intense <sighs> series of tragedies, um, you know, in our, in our personal life, um, which was like very intimate. And um, because of that, we were enduring a lot of grief. It, it, it was strange that every so often at the end of the day, when I was interviewing folks, I was allowed to forget that um, a bit because um, the life there was so much more real in essence and, um, or just differently real and, and intense and immediate and on the ground that I, I felt like a, a weird way to decompress at the end of the day was by returning to my own personal grief in the quiet of you know, um, a motel room in the middle of the Namaqualand desert as the sand was kind of like battering the windscreens. And so that was just a return to a different kind of, of real. I felt like at the end of the day, like during the research process, um, I, you know, permitted myself a bit of interiority and engaging in an engagement, you know, thereof. Like when I was out talking to people, I didn't. Um, I couldn't. And when I'm talking about like different versions of reality, even there, you know, the stories varied, you know, even if, if the subject matter was similar, depending on to whom I was speaking and at what level in, in just kind of like the De Beers machine um, they were at. So, I mean, folks who, you know, were, were mining, um, who were actually doing the physical labor of, of, of diamond mining, would tell me one particular story. And then of course the security guards who would lord over those folks 
would spin the story in a very, very different way. And then the mind managers would in turn spin the story in a very different way. And then when I conducted interviews with folks who were higher up in the corporation, they would spin the story in a very, very different way. So this notion of real life and and navigating um, all of these various realities um, just took a a, a little bit of like both physical and emotional surfing, I suppose. (laughs) For sure. And it's interesting that you bring up a kind of spinning around of storytelling. I took note of the sections uh, between Bartholomew, the pigeon, and uh, I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing the young man's name correctly. Is it Misisi? It's it's um Misisi. So it's just like the mm and then Sisi. Misisi. Misisi. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I noticed those sections are called variations, and I guess like maybe I'm putting too much. I don't know, maybe I'm putting too much meaning onto that, but could, could you just talk about what went into the titling of those sections and sort of the lyricism of those sections that we get in contrast to the rest of the text? Yeah, so the, the Bartholomew variations, it's, I think there's like seven of them in the book and they're kind of like interspersed throughout like these interstitial like palate cleansers, if you can even call them that, <laughs> or maybe palate muddiers, I'm not sure. No, I definitely would. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in, in between um, uh, the, the primary text. And, and so the Bartholomew variations follow Mcsi's, um trained carrier pigeon, Bartholomew, on a journey from the diamond mine. And Bartholomew at this point has um, four bags of diamonds cinched to his pigeon body, you know, one bag to each of his feet and then two beneath his wings, um, which is how Msizi would uh, smuggle diamonds out of the mine oftentimes. I just want to be clear that Msizi is not his real name. I, I changed his name in order to, I changed everybody's name in the book in order to protect identities. But, and so uh, it basically, I, I did enough research, I felt, with regard to um, hanging out with Msizi and Bartholomew and just talking and talking and talking and observing, observing, observing. Um, uh, I was um, actually permitted to, to visit a couple of different diamond mines there on the coast. And then, of course, I uh, was able to trace Bartholomew's likely trajectory from mine to Msizi's home based on the way pigeons fly. And then I was able to map that trajectory over and onto the landscape. And then I was able to do a little bit of research into that very particular landscape. And uh, then I was able to string a bunch of history as it pertained to that landscape onto Bartholomew's trajectory. So it was kind of like um, speculation born of a whole lot of research. So I think like, I guess, educated speculation, but said speculation allowed me to imagine a bit and lyricize, I guess, the pigeon's journey from, you know, mine to, you know, Msizi's home where his mother would, if Bartholomew would make it, ideally untie the bags of diamonds and and sell them on the secondary market. And not for a whole lot of money, basically just enough to, you know, um, feed the family. (laughs) Just a little bit more than De Beers would pay the miners as their quote-unquote legitimate bonus, which amounted to about a nickel per carat on earth, five cents per carat on earth. And so the Bartholomew variations were actually written um, very late in the process of writing the book. 
both my agent and editor felt that there needed to be like an additional kind of through line there. And uh, so I, I just had this, this idea to trace Bartholomew's trajectory. And it, it forced me to go back and do a whole lot more research on the area um, and, and conduct some follow-up interviews and to conduct a bit more research into just kind of like the hiccups that are seething in the pigeon's DNA and, and genetic makeup and things. So, so yeah, I guess that's, that's what, that's what those, those are. <laughs> that's great. Could you elaborate a bit on the hiccups in DNA just mentioned, and also the kind of myths and legends surrounding pigeons? Oh yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I suppose like one of the things that I found so interesting when I was um, engaging pigeon behavior and our responses there too, is that we still don't understand how and why pigeons home. Like we, we just don't know how they do it. We don't know how they, you know, navigate all of this space and can find their way to a small singular coop in somebody's backyard, for instance. We, we have theories, we have a bunch of theories, but all of them um, are kind of unconfirmed and reside in the realm of, of educated guess and mystery. Um, we think pigeons have like these inborn star maps that are just kind of like sewn into, you know, the, the fabric of their DNA where they could like read and easily map the stars, which I think is so fascinating. They, they could, they have like this um, innate chronometer. Um, they could see like um, color differently and... You know, um, there there are certain there are certain ornithologists and scientists who believe that the Earth's magnetic field and the vibrations of the Earth um, kind of pulse in a way that a pigeon can perceive, in a way that we would describe as seeing, like via sight. They would see just kind of like these these strange whirls of color um, that served as like portals and wormholes and maps by which they would navigate, but it was controlled by the, the, the vibrations and pulses of the Earth's magnetic field. So that stuff was really fascinating to me. Um, mythologically speaking, you know, pigeons, um, I mean, according to like binomial nomenclature and things like that, pigeons are no different than doves. And so pigeons have played various roles in um, human uh, story and doctrine, myth, we could call it, I suppose, um, sometimes, but story, human story across like time, history and, you know, region and culture. They were oftentimes seen as symbols of purity. You know, in, in Hindu doctrine, pigeons carried messages between the land of the living and the land of the dead. And it was, it was seen as pigeons would kind of be reincarnated as pigeons over and over and over again. And when they have sufficiently carried their, uh, you know, enough messages that they were charged with, I suppose, by the gods between the land and the, uh, the living and the land of the dead, they will die another death, shed their avian form and be reborn as a rose. Um, so I kind of like that one. <laughs> That's just purely biblical right there. <laughs> um, goodness. I, well, the reason I asked is because I find it so striking that, you know, these sorts of beliefs just proliferate and proliferate. And then um, I'm reading the book and the context you give in the region about how, how the, how the 
what was seen as a crisis was was dealt with that pigeons um, because of their role in the diamond smuggling it was understood what was happening and authorities actually made it illegal not to shoot a pigeon upon sight sometime around 1998 I think uh, and so I guess I'm just trying to reconcile this sort of reverence that has sort of devolved into a kind of fear or need to control or dispossess, which I think you mentioned a little bit at your reading. Could you elaborate for our listeners what you think about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So it's it's incredibly interesting. And yeah, I mean, great, great memory. It was 1998 um, in the town of Alexander Bay, South Africa, and Aranyamund, Namibia, where um, local lawmakers made it illegal to not shoot a pigeon on site should one have the means to do so. And so like what that means is if, if you like happen to be walking down the streets of one of these two towns with a gun strapped to your hip and a pigeon crossed your path and you did not pull out a gun and shoot that pigeon dead, you could be arrested and fined. And so, uh, yeah, and there were there were all these like um, unofficial anti-pigeon militias that just kind of proliferated in the area. Um, they were kind of like independent contractors for De Beers, though De Beers claimed that they had nothing to do with these folks because they weren't officially employed by the corporation. And these were usually just a bunch of drunken men who would pile into open-topped Land Rovers and in the middle of the night, kidnap people's pet birds straight from their home coops, take them out to an isolated spot on the beach and make a game out of, out of executing these poor birds. I rode along with one of these militias in the, uh, in, in, in the book. And yeah, these are just like terribly, you know, just like terrible men, um, terrible, heavily armed, drunken men who, who you know, slake their bloodlust on birds. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really fascinating how, how, how like the human take on pigeons has changed. Um, they're now called rats with wings. They're no longer the symbols of purity and peace to us, right? I happen to be in love with them and they are brilliant animals, but we have kind of turned them into tools um, over the years as our technology has, uh, I mean, we've basically made of them a technology. We've made of them like a rotor, a lever, a lever, a pulley. We've turned them into a tool. I, I mean, pigeons essentially were the first telephones. Pigeons, one can argue, represented the, uh, you know, the progenitor for the, the, the internet in the way that they kind of like deliver um, messages and information and communication over long distances. They were the early mail system. And, and maybe we kind of treat them poorly now because we've indentured them to our needs. Um, we've made them servants. And so we tend to like lord over them in that way. And that kind of changed the narrative. I also think maybe people dislike them because they're so ubiquitous. They, I don't know, shit on people's cars and that pisses people off, I, I suppose. It's sort of like the inverse of our thinking about diamonds. Um, we think diamonds are rare. And if, if we tend to equate rarity with worth, I guess we also tend to equate the common with the worthless, the boring. And the common rock dove, you know, the pigeons are common. The common can be dismissed. And the common pigeon, which, which tends to thrive in hu human settlements, 
they roost in our eaves, they eat our crumbs, um, they can be reviled. It makes me wonder about like our innate territoriality as humans. We don't wanna share our space or our food or our other resources with any other species, with the pigeon especially, especially something that should be serving us. And yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess uh, uh, we feel like the earth is ours. And so when we see them in such numbers, maybe we've turned them into our enemy. I guess I wanted to know a little bit about, since CNF is a relatively young genre in the sense of, you know, used to be called personal essay. So it's not, it's not that young, but uh, in terms of being seen regarded as CNF, do you have any advice for writers looking to cross genres, experiment in new genres, particularly coming from fiction or poetry to CNF? Um, I know you began as a poet. Yeah. um, I don't know. I feel feel uniquely ill-equipped to provide advice to young writers as I feel like I just sort of like incidentally backed into this um, sort of pursuit. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, yeah, I guess CNF is a young genre in academia, but it's certainly not a young genre outside of the academic confines. I mean, I suppose like, you know, the academic cloister only lent it legitimacy, uh, you know, in the last couple of decades or something. But what I, I, I guess my only advice to like young writers about it is, is be excited about that because, um, even though the essay has, you know, been been around since, you know, ancient Greece and before, there isn't because it wasn't quote unquote legitimized by the academy um, until somewhat recently, there isn't like this wealth of scholarship out there pinning it down and hemming it in and defining it um, and just kind of erecting these parameters around it as a genre, as there is, I suppose, with poetry and fiction. Um, and sometimes, you know, those, those kind of like critical parameters or those scholarly parameters could be exciting because it gives us writers something to push against and work against um, or work within. Um, you know, we're aware of these traditions and things and we could like navigate that sea and, and see where we fit in and see where we don't fit in and see what's beautiful and inspiring and see what's atrocious and all of that. But because we don't have that as much with CNF, I feel like the conversations that we are having at present, whether it's in a classroom or in a bar or at a writing conference, um, or I don't know, just in a living room with like-minded friends, these are the sort of conversations that are going to impact future scholarship and shape it. And which makes CNF right now like so dynamic and malleable and elusive and electric, you know? So um, I guess my only advice is, is be excited about that. And I feel as if CNF also just contains so many subgenres, it contains so many multitudes that so much of it, I think, actually exists in between genre or across genre, you know? Um, a lot of folks are putting out these beautiful, like, hybrid or transgenre works that, that live in the realm of the essay. The essay can contain it. So there's room for poetic impulse um, and poetry itself within the confines of the essay. Um, This might be a controversial thing to say, but there's actually room for kind of fictional flourish 
within the confines of the essay, if that fictional flourish is being used in service of what the essay might be misperceiving as a larger truth, right? I mean, W.G. Sebald talked about this a lot. He was like, as an essayist, I feel as if fiction is one of my tools in the essay, and I could introduce a fictional flourish into an essay without having the essay entire all of a sudden becoming fiction by a default. Because the opposite isn't true. Um, a novel can include a fact and not all of a sudden become nonfiction just for the inclusion of a single fact. So, so it's interesting. Um, these sorts of contracts that we're supposed to have with readers, I don't know what those are. And I don't know what that means. And I don't know who these readers are because every single individual reader brings a different set of expectations to every single different piece of art. It's all situation specific. That's a fantastic answer. And I'm having a real eureka moment because we just discussed Sebald in my modernism class, one of his essays on uh, Dublin. And we were just talking about how kind of a central question of modernism with nature conquering technology. And that's exactly what you just talked about with how we relate to pigeons. So <laughs> I'm just over here geeking out. Okay. So that brings me to the, just a final question. I'm curious what's inspiring you right now. It could be a piece of literature, music, or anything, anything even not related to art. Uh, that's kind of driving your next project. If you have a next project in mind. Yeah, yeah, like, um, I, I suppose a few different things. I just finished Hanif Abdurraqib's um, Little Devil in America, which just kind of blew my doors off. Um, I mean, ju just the way in which Abdurraqib navigates poetry and memoir and the lyric and the fact and activism um, and, uh, and art and cultural critique like on the page so seamlessly. It's, so that book is really exciting me, um, just how it's doing so much at once, somewhat seamlessly. I, I always come, I always, like, I mean, ever since I read it, I mean, because it's not that old, but I come back to Elena Passarello's Animals Strike Curious Poses a lot because I'm very much concerned with how to write about the natural world too. Um, and I feel like Animal Strike Curious Poses is just a masterclass. Uh, and Elena is just, I mean, I, I think one of the greatest, you know, essayists working today and the greatest minds and, and, and is just like a fucking cool person, just a really, really cool person. I adore her. I'm, I'm also just really enjoying going for walks. You know, I'm, I, I feel like I'm only good at two things, Lilia. Like, I, I feel like I'm okay at writing and I'm good at walking. Um, like, I'm okay at walking, like traversing space. I feel like I could do it endlessly. And so it's become my meditation. And I go on these really, really long walks. Um, and I just kind of like work out, um, you know, uh, these projects in my head. Like, I oftentimes write in the morning and then I'll go for this walk. Um, maybe for a couple of hours and just sort of like pull it apart on the walks as I watch like, I don't know, birds and leaves um, and things. It helps me like pull pull the work apart a bit. And I am working on a new project. Um, I'll just say this like really quickly. It's, it's about um, this community of folks 
and they're not all together. They're, they're kind of like scattered about the world, kind of have this obsession um, with sinking um, into deep water to the point at which they build their kind of like amateur DIY submersibles or submarines in their backyards and sometimes float them out. And they're not engineers. Um, and they sometimes float them out into the sea and things don't tend to go well. Uh, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, interested in, in that. I'm obsessed with obsessives, I suppose. And I'm just interested in, in that kind of compulsion um, and talking to people about it. <laughs> Thank you for listening. That was this month's episode. Listen in next time to hear Editor-in-Chief Stephanie Geschwin talk with Lauren Haldeman about her piece, Field Number One, our first ever graphic nonfiction work, which appears in our fall-winter issue.